Hi, good afternoon. Welcome back. We have a very distinguished panel with uh, three thought leaders who I particularly respect and admire. One common denominator among these three people is they've all been very generous in sharing their wisdom with the MOI community, especially via the online conferences that John hosts on a quarterly basis. By way of introduction, I think uh, actual ideas, I think sometimes convey the point even better than concepts. Uh, we have Felix. Felix presented Onyx at Widemote 2016. You presented Baidu at Widemote 2017. And you spoke about Middleby and Freshy at Widemote 2018. We have uh, Dave Sather. And you uh, discussed Remy Contraire. Is that close? Quintro. OK. Quintro. Union Pacific at Widemote 2015. Exalta Coding Systems at Widemote 2016. Bank of New York Mellon at Widemote 2017. And uh, you also recently discussed Starbucks at Widemote 2018. So thank you for all your contributions. And those are some names you know, I hope, pretty well. And uh, Sean is at the end. Sean, you spoke about Landstar most recently, I believe. And I, you also authored a, a very nice essay about brands and the threats to brands. I think uh, by way of more detailed background, let's go around the panel. And if you could say a few words of how you defined, how you defined uh, compounders and how you search for compounders. Uh, Dave, if you don't mind. I think I, I actually struggle with that definition more and more. Um, you know, for anybody who's heard me speak before, there's a little story that early in my career, a uh, gentleman told me just to follow, eat them, drink them, smoke them, go to the doctor and look good when you get there. Meaning your food and beverage companies, cigarette companies, healthcare, cosmetics, things like that. And I think that that may be what worked 20 years ago. Um, 20 years ago is uh, at least one or two careers ago. And I think going forward, the identification of what a compounder is, is changing. Earlier over lunch, we were having the discussion about Starbucks, that sure, it may be a delivery system for our favorite drug, caffeine, but really, it is a glorified technology company. And same thing with Domino's. The ability to harness technology and be able to uh, ramp that growth rate up for a considerable time period is uh, ever more challenging and really is the task at hand. And long time frames, in my opinion, used to be 10 or more years. I I'm thankful if I get three to five years out of it these days. It just seems that the world is compressed in terms of its levels of competitiveness such that just as soon as you have kind of ironed out the plan of attack, it's changed. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so we think about uh, compounders uh, in the sense that we kind of segment the market uh, into two buckets. So there's close the discount ideas, which maybe is more kind of traditional uh, value ideas, buy them really cheap, hope the discount closes. But the businesses themselves really aren't growing that, that fast. Maybe, you know, 10 years, they'll be worth intrinsically the same. And uh, the compounders are the whole reason why the indices in the market goes up over time. Uh, uh, Black started a study uh, a number of years ago that looked at all the stocks in the Russell 3000 from 83 to 2007, so 24 years. Uh, and in that period, about 8,000 stocks went through the Russell 3000. So some went private, some got taken out, some went bankrupt. 
Uh, and what they found was that if you took out the 25% of the individual best per performers' lifetime returns, uh, that drove all the returns in the market. So the bottom 75% collectively had a zero return over 24 years. So really why the market goes up is there's a handful of companies that grow their per share uh, value at a rapid pace and pull up all the rest of this you know, mediocre companies up behind them. So uh, the key is really to, to identify companies that you understand um, and then be patient with them because uh, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes multiple years as we've seen with uh, you know, the Amazons of the world and Googles of the year. This, these aren't overnight success stories. Uh, and, uh, and, and they especially seem to be more technology related today. So, uh, and that's really a big focus at Pender. We, we spend a lot of time on, uh, on uh, uh, thinking about technology and technology-enabled competitive advantage even beyond the, the so-called tech companies. I guess the more classic definition of Compounder is a business that has an opportunity to reinvest significant amounts of capitals at high returns, but our own portfolio is, is full more of what we would think of as capital-light compounders, where they have significant growth opportunities, but the return invested capital is so high that they don't need to reinvest much of their earnings to achieve that growth. Um, and so for us, that's a compounder, but I think it's important to to recognize how different those sorts of companies are. So uh, like a business like Home Depot, you know, 30 years ago as a capital light, com or excuse me, as a capital heavy compounder, right? They had basically zero free cash flow, break even free cash flow as they grew a lot because they reinvested every dollar to build out their stores. Um, whereas a business like Landstar Systems that, that you mentioned, Shai, um, you know, generates return on invested capital over 30%. And so they've been able to reduce their share count as they grow and to pay out special dividends. And we're more attracted to that free cash flow heavy business model, partly because of how much safety it gives the business to make aggressive moves during downturns or, or invest when the opportunity is there. Um, so for us, we don't identify so much with the more classic definition of, of kind of the capital heavy reinvestment opportunity, um, but a business that can grow its intrinsic value. And the two tools to do that are high returns on invested capital and a, and a large reinvestment opportunity, but hopefully it doesn't take all that much of your capital to achieve that growth. I'm hoping that this conversation will be very two-way interactive. Let me please pose a question to the panelists, and then if anyone in the audience wants to share some perspective, we'll pause for some audience feedback. The first question is uh, getting right to the point. Let's begin to explore the compounders of tomorrow, which have some visibility even today. How do you begin to unravel that riddle? And uh, Sean, any strong thoughts? So. We definitely focus on businesses that have competitive advantages today, and typically very strong ones. Um, and they may have been compounders for some time. That's kind of our, our bread and butter. Um, we're very focused on the durability of those competitive advantages, and so hopefully those are also the compounders of, of the future. Um, but one thing we've been focused more on in recent years is trying to understand the degree to which we can identify the future emergence of new competitive advantages. So. Um, Morningstar's equity research group um, is the, the one kind of sell-side organization that rates the moat characteristics of businesses. And they've shown that you know, they, they have basically no moats, narrow moats, and wide moats for all of the rated companies. And they've demonstrated that wide moat companies outperform just all by themselves. But the best performance comes from those that move up that rating scale. So narrow moat businesses that become wide moat businesses. And even no moat businesses that become narrow moat businesses exhibit the best returns. 
And this reminds us of research that uh, RS Investments put out about a decade ago that showed high return invested capital businesses outperform just that one metric. But more importantly, those that increase the returns on invested capital over time generate the best performance. So in recent years, we've been thinking more about businesses that may not currently have competitive advantage or not up to the threshold that we would deem typically to, to be included into our universe, um, but those that are developing those competitive advantages. Now, uh, we think you need to size those differently, right? Because they might not develop them. Um, but we believe, you know, even though our portfolio might be labeled, say, by Morningstar as a growth portfolio because it trades at high returns to book because the businesses generate very high returns on invested capital, we don't think that we can speculate all that much on future growth opportunities. It's really hard to predict. Um, but we think we're better at predicting future returns on invested capital, which is a more durable fundamental metric than growth is, right? So growth decays much more rapidly to average rates than return invested capital does. And you can look at that across the universe of stocks. And so we've been looking at, can we identify um, competitive advantages and, and moats as they rise? Um, and so a couple of years ago, we took a position in Netflix at a time when we thought that they were developing competitive advantages. We thought they had pricing power, but we didn't yet have the evidence that that pricing power was as strong as we thought it might be. And as they began raising prices with really no impact on subscriber counts, and you still see things, they'll say, well, there's a lot of churn, but you just have to look at kind of quarterly subscribers there, and it's kind of grown right through their price increases, demonstrating really enormous pricing power that we think has significant more, significantly further to go. And then more recently taking a position in Trupanion that Josh Tarasoff's talked a lot about, and again, a business that um, it wouldn't historically have risen to the threshold we would require to say this is a competitive advantage business, but the Trupania Express software that they're installing in their vet offices to us creates a, a very different sort of ecosystem and a very different sort of business than, than what exists today. And so um, both of those began, you know, Netflix has gone into kind of our core, like this is a Modi business, um, and Trupanion is still kind of an emerging moat stock. But to me, I'm kind of most intellectually interested today in, in learning more about how can you identify businesses that don't have moats yet, um, but are going to develop them in the future. Um, because if we're all long-term investors, that's what we care about, right? Is the future state of a company, not just its state today. Felix, Steve, anything to add of compounders, compounders of tomorrow? Um, yeah, so uh, one of my favorite quotes is from uh, William Gibson. He's a uh, cyberpunk sci-fi author, author, and uh, it's, uh, the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. So, you know, a number of years ago, you know, we looked at uh, cloud computing when it was first, you know, emerging in 2010, uh, did a big report, looked at who the leading players were, and um, it was pretty obvious uh, then that the inevitable leaders uh, were going to be a, a relatively small handful of companies, and that inevitably um, uh, servers were going to move off on-premise to off-premise, so cloud was going to happen, but it was, it was basically optionality, and the leaders were uh, Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft, those are the big leaders. And, um, but, the, but the valuation for the Google um, opportunity uh, or the cloud opportunity just wasn't in the stock at all. It was simply optionality. So you basically got that for free. And you know, as we see you know, these fangs today that we're talking about, um, a big reason why they've risen is that optionality has come through. It was almost impossible to establish what the value would be, but if you're not paying for it, it's great. So you know, today's analog to that you know, I would suggest uh, is, is artificial intelligence. So I think artificial intelligence is one of these inevitable um, uh, um, 
trends that's going to impact uh, so many things in the next five to ten years. Uh, and it relates to one of the presentations we did last year at Baidu, who's the leader of artificial intelligence in, uh, in, in China. But right now, um, again, it's not priced in whatsoever into the stock at all. You know, if you strip out their, um, if you strip out their uh, debt cash and their non-core assets, like their position in C-Trip and ITE, uh, you know, it's trading slightly above 10 times uh, operating earnings. Uh, and ultimately, uh, you know, five or 10 years, we might just be talking just about AI. Uh, like today, everybody considers uh, Google the leader in autonomous driving, the Waymo division. So if you look at some sell-side reports, people are you know, sticking valuations of you know, $175, $200 billion uh, on that division. Uh, I'll tell you one market that Google's not going to win in autonomous driving, and that's China. Because the Chinese government has already picked Baidu as the government-supported platform, uh, Apollo, uh, and China is the largest uh, car market uh, in the world. So uh, kind of when you think about the optionality and what's not priced in, never mind all the other uh, artificial intelligence and data mining that they can do and new business plans I haven't thought about, uh, that to me is very interesting. So as far as um, you know, hints of potential compounding, free options like that and huge, enormous markets, uh, we like that. For me, it's, it's very much of a... Um difficulty in mindset in terms of looking for things that are predictable and consistent, which is what we're, you know, historically taught. And then you come and you kick over the rock on something like Appian or Shopify. And Shopify is run by an, an owner, uh, operator. Uh, it's run by people that are passionate about what they do. But if you look at their financials, it definitely is not something with a 20-year time frame of predictable sales, predictable cash flow, and earnings. But they're, they're definitely the ones that conceptually you want to keep your eyes on. In college, I took basic programming. I stunk at it. I couldn't figure it out. And then you look at something like Appian that is basically coding with flowcharts. Uh, when, when you look at the, their clients, they are bringing together applications that bring all of their different software together, and they're cutting the lead time, uh, production time, down by uh, down uh, to only 10, 15% what it would traditionally be. So those are the types of things that start to get our attention, recognizing that uh, they can truly change the way that software is developed, or in the case of Shopify, it is bringing everything from the back-end inventory to payment processing to the delivery such that your neighborhood store that's here in Manhattan can all of a sudden be a global player in whatever their industry might want to be, which is fantastic for consumers and really deliver something that I think is what we would all hope for. So John Huber, probably a year, year and a half ago, he penned a piece that talked about the new moat and maybe the most important moat. And that was, if your customer had the ability to get away from you, would they? You think about that. There are some moats that are thrust upon society, and therefore you're able to compound whether people like it or not. You know, really, in an age that is seeing greater and greater disruption, you really want to find out whether or not that business is providing value to all the users, whether it be a supplier or developer or a shareholder, whomever. And so in some cases, like, uh, again, Appian and Shopify, I can certainly see it. We don't own them, but we can certainly see the rationale behind why we would. But as ratcheting up to things that are probably a little bit more in the traditional norm, 
We think the uh, Disney-Fox merger is completely, completely discounted. Uh, we own Fox prior to Disney. Uh, you've got great content. You've got good international assets, emerging market assets there. Um, to me, that's one that probably will continue to be a household name for the next 10 years. It's very unlikely that that content library is going to be disrupted. And then on payment processing, I, in our office, the best day to buy um, MasterCard is a day that ends in Y. I used to discount PayPal thinking, okay, it's this cute little thing, whatever. But you know, when you look at how big PayPal has become, you're, you're really underestimating a growing giant that is going to continue to piggyback off the proliferation of digital cash and a movement away from green dollar bills. And turning to the audience, does anyone here at Latticework 2018 have any ideas for future compounders they'd like to share or talk about? And if not, we have more questions, it's okay. So turning back to the, uh, the panel, what are some areas that you previously felt comfortable investing in that now are becoming in the too hard pile? I think for, for us, and Tom Russo is going on after us, and, and I'm looking forward to hearing him because I know he almost certainly has a very different point of view, is I think a lot of consumer brands are going in the too hard pile for us now. Um, you know, our thinking about brands is there's two kind of major types. There's brands that lower search costs. So brands like Tide, where you walk into the supermarket and you don't have to do a lot of price comparison or figure out what the best value is. You just grab something because you recognize it. Um, a lot of consumer brands are, are like that. Um, and then there are brands that are kind of more prestige brands, um, which we think continue to be robust for a long time. So like a Tiffany or a Ferrari, where the brand is about uh, identifying and, and self-expression, which is, I think, only becoming more important to people. Um, and so in a world in which you know, Amazon can tell you instantaneously the best value or most popular and all those sorts of things, the brand ceases to matter as much. Um, and in a past world where marketing channels and, and informing people about your brand was about a relatively limited set of, of messaging channels that the big brands could dominate, and now we're in a world that is so fragmented in, in communication channels, we really wonder about um, the ability of big consumer brands that have created value through imp you know, impressing their product concept to a to a customers where the customers say, yep, I just go in, I just buy that, no big deal, right? And so um, like a Dollar Shave Club being able to, to move so fast could never have done that because it couldn't have spent the marketing dollars if, if there was three channels and that was the only way to, to put ads out there, right? Um, or uh, LaCroix Sparkling Water more recently, right? Where that's been around for a long time, but it was only once social media channels became a very, very important viable way that at least on the West Coast and in New York, like LaCroix just becomes this enormous thing. And, and um, I know in my office, it's like, we literally go through like a case or two a day in, in a 13 person office. And you know, it's, that's, that's the product, right? And, and, and nobody really drinks Coke or Pepsi in our office. And Pepsi's newest ads, or excuse, Coke, Diet Coke's newest ads are basically positioning it as like the devilish treat, right? You go ahead and have Diet Coke even though it's not so good for you. You know, it's like if you want it, have it anyway. And um, so we think that the, the things that made the search cost brands so powerful for so long 
um, are currently under very significant assault, and, and we don't know anything like that in our portfolio today, although we have for much of our 15-year history. Um, I, I would agree. Consumer brands, I think, are, are, are challenged for all the reasons that, that you mentioned. Um, I, I would add, add that a lot of uh, traditional uh, legacy media, uh, maybe with the exception of you know, exemplar uh, Disney, perhaps, but uh, you know, we look at companies, we kind of think about what is the DNA of the company. So a lot of media companies, I mean, the DNA of media companies, are they're, they're intrinsically storytellers. The people leading them are storytellers. And then you have companies like your Netflix, uh, that are basically technology-enabled and data-driven companies. And so uh, it's just a totally different kind of DNA, and I think that leads to different kind of results. Like, you know, House of Cards obviously was, was launched because they had all this data that suggested that this is the kind of series and the people that, you know, people wanted to watch. You know, in China, there's equivalent, so they have, you know, they don't have as big, uh, you know, legacy uh, media networks, but uh, ITE, which is the largest, essentially, Netflix in China, uh, they mine their data and, and they launched the the rap of China. Like, who would think of the rap of China uh, uh, would be a huge, you know, interest? But it's by far the most popular show in China, uh, and I don't think a traditional media storyteller uh, uh, type of uh, a legacy business would think that that was a good idea. But the data said to try it, and it's a huge success. So again, I think uh, kind of the, the the business models are shifting. So it's it's a dangerous time. For us, we've just finally thrown in the towel on things like biotech. Um, you know, got to be very careful about confusing uh, bull market with genius. Uh, in the 90s, we were able to buy all sorts of pharma and biotech, and it went up, and we thought we were smart. And maybe with age and wisdom, or maybe we came to our senses, we realized that we really don't have the knowledge or the skill set to evaluate one patent versus another. Who's going to come over the top of somebody else? Um, I serve as chairman of the board of a bank in Texas, and uh, banking regulation has never been so prevalent. Uh, you would think that it's still uh, the ashes of 0809, uh, where community banking is still treated very similarly to uh, Citigroup. Even though they say that that has changed, it, it really has not. The costs of compliance are, are very burdensome. And you have a lot more competitors in your traditional, more commoditized banks. So you think about a community bank, they are not only competing with Citigroup, but they're also competing with private equity and Venmo uh, and Rocket Mortgage. And so areas like that back in the, in the 90s, you could make very easy money with a lot of those things that offered very traditional products to families all over the place. And they become a lot more difficult. So. Maybe, maybe with age, we've just figured out that there are certain things to leave alone and recognize that we don't have to play every game that's thrown in front of us. And Dave, to follow up on your comment about banking, how do you determine which banks are the best positioned, and how do you come up with a long-term thesis for any company that you particularly enjoy in that sector? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> Coming out of 0809, we recognized that the banks were in were going to be in better shape. Uh, we spoke at Lattice Work two years ago about the the state of community banking and alluded to a little bit of that. But even then, you realized that the costs of compliance and anti money laundering were going to be more and more burdensome to where there would be uh, force out of a lot more mergers. Um, 
we have removed all of our exposure to Bank of America. We still own some U.S. Bank Corp. Uh, we own TARP warrants on pretty much everything that was available at the time. But we've determined that a lot of those banks, they're just easier decisions. Uh, we still own Bank of New York, which is a custody bank, which is a very different animal. Um, we still like the custody banks, and we respect J.P. Morgan. I'm just not sure I can figure it out. And uh, maybe you know, getting bit after 0809. I know Mr. Wackenheim said he's comfortable with Citigroup. He is obviously a smarter man than I am. Um, when you start dealing with black box stuff, it's very difficult to look your client in the eye and say. I understand this asset. And so there's just a lot of those that we've just chosen to stay away from. And uh, Felix, you're joining us from Canada. I'd love to ask if you perceive compounders in Canada and the United States as having nuances or it's rather similar across countries? Um, well, there's not as many. It's not, first of all, it's not as deep of a market, obviously, than the U.S. So uh, personally, I focus most of my efforts personally in, on U.S. listed um, holdings. Uh, but Canada is dominated by, you know, natural resource companies, uh, financials. Uh, so neither of those two categories really uh, dominate that kind of, you know, 20% category of, you know, driving the market over long periods of time. So uh, I certainly think there's far more opportunity uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, there's also a tendency in Canada um, to sell out uh, rather than build a company to, you know, a truly a large size. So, you know, your compounding tends to end earlier, even if you have potential, just by the nature of, you know, maybe Canadians are too conservative. They're not willing to, you know, uh, bet on the trend as long as Americans are. It's just got kind of a different risk culture. So you generally don't have uh, as many compounders uh, in Canada. And Sean, you brought up the uh, difference between a, ser a search brand and the other phrase. What was the other phrase you mentioned? I said prestige brands, and, and um, it may be better understood as self-expression brands, right? Brands that the, the public use of help people express who they are in the world. Could, could you elaborate more on who's going to benefit from this trend? Well, you know, I think that, that any brand that can create, um, create something that helps people express who they are, that's a very powerful, durable opportunity but it's not easy to do. Um, we own Nike. Um, you know, the, the new Kaepernick ads that, that came out are obviously super controversial, as are many of Nike's ads in the past. Um, there are people who will say, this product is not for me. That also defines it as for somebody else, right? And so irrespective of your view on Nike or that particular controversy or anything else, this is a brand that is embracing its role in helping people express who they are. Um, I met with a client yesterday um, who's from San Francisco, where we are, who's quite liberal. She lives here. Her husband's a firefighter. They're on different sides of, of this particular ad. But this was a couple who, you know, two nights ago had a discussion about this particular thing and what it meant. And, and Nike is an important, powerful thing. And, and if the next day her husband were to strap on a pair of Nikes, he would be telling his wife something, right? And if she threw her Nikes in the trash, she would be telling him something. Um, that's not true of these kind of search cost brands that I was referring to. So I think they're extremely different. And I think that, um, you know, when we uh, kind of mock the millennial generation for showing all of their life on Instagram and everything, 
humans are self-expressing people. We just have done it in different ways, and young people might do it differently than older people did when they were younger. But we think self-expression is a very durable um, thing to invest in. And so brands that can figure that out and not try to appeal to everybody, which is the entire point of a brand. I don't mean to take, pick on Tide. It just stuck in my head when I got started. you know. But the whole point was to create brands that appeal to everybody and, and um, brands like Tiffany or Ferrari businesses, well, we've exited Tiffany more recently just on valuation, but brands like Tiffany or, or Ferrari, they are not for everybody. And, and, um, and limiting your opportunity set to better appeal to this more limited set, I think, is a, is a very durable strategy for brands that can pull it off. And Sean, elaborating on another point you made, that you're trying to find companies with water and water moats incrementally, are there any industries that currently have narrow moats that you strongly believe will get more wide over time? Well, it's hard to say on the industry side of things. We run a 20 to 25 position portfolio, and I kind of learned over the years that I really shouldn't have any opinion on anything that I haven't done really deep work on. Um, we mentioned banks, and, and in the past I would have said, like, oh, we don't own banks, but in 2012, we bought First Republic Bank. It's one of our top conviction names. We've owned it for a long time. It was because only after doing deep work do we realize like they're not actually even in the banking industry. They're in the customer service industry to high net worth individuals. And high net worth individuals value customer service at a very high level and put customer service in their banking relationship on, as a high priority item. And, um, and so in that case, we said this is a, a very durable um, strategy for them because we don't believe for a moment that the banking industry as a whole can embrace a high customer service level um, service offering. Um, and so at the, I, it's hard for me to answer your question at the industry level, um, but the best I can do is something that's more in retrospect, although we've participated in it you know, over the last decade, is, um, is the rise of some of these kind of fang type companies. Not all of them, but, but as a group. And, and I think the easiest way to understand the shift that happened is that at the end of this month, Standard & Poor's is launching a new sector, the communication services sector. It'll be just about 11% of total market cap. It'll be the fourth largest sector of the S&P 500 tied with consumer discretionary. And all of the social media stocks are going in there. Netflix is going in there. Booking Holding, another holding of ours is going in there. These businesses aren't tech businesses. They never were, right? They were communication businesses. And the communication industries for the last 100 years have been defensible, modi businesses with high returns. Also, often subject to regulation, right? So the social media hearings are like, well, of course, right? Because tech stocks, tech companies don't typically face a lot of regulation, but communication does. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the things we've seen over the last decade, um, we don't believe at all that this is kind of like a tech bubble 2.0, that this is the rise of an entirely new sector of the economy, um, which happens from time to time, right? Se sectors come and go. Uh, 15 years ago, the biggest market cap companies in the world were banking and energy stocks. Is that going to be true in a decade? I don't think so. That's not, we don't have mean reversion at the sector level, right? Sectors come and go. Um, so I think that uh, to answer your question kind of most directly, that the, the things that are emerging are these businesses that are maybe tech-enabled, but they're not actually tech businesses. They don't sell tech. They sell communication or other things. And I think that's where there continues to be a lot of opportunity. And uh, opening for the whole panel, we brought up a few companies that have been compounders in the past that might have difficulties going forward. I think you mentioned Coke and Tide. 
Are there any other companies that, again, you're trying to stay away from, even though they've had a very nice track record? Yeah, I, I think the, the consumer the consumer brands I think are, are challenging. I mean, you know, I think one of the people that you know might be considered one of the experts is uh, uh, Jorge Pauli. Paulo Lehman of the 3G. So he did an interview recently, and uh, he said, "You know, I'm a terrified dinosaur. You know, I bought these brands, and I thought they'd last forever. And uh, you know, just to Sean's point, I mean, you know, you have um, so many more choices today. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily a, a trust issue. A lot of the public, uh, they're not perceived as authentic any longer with all these other choices. Um, you know, Jeff Bezos has talked about." The fact that competitive advantage doesn't come from being able to shout the loudest anymore. So all the advertising advantage that these big brands had is no longer an advantage. And then they don't have a direct link uh, ultimately to uh, to the consumer, right? They're going through channels and, you know, just like Netflix is winning because they have a direct link to the consumer. They know what the consumer is doing. Uh, Amazon, uh, you know, with Amazon Basics and private labeling, um, that's a huge advantage. Uh, so. Again, I, 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 I think that's a, that, that, that's a challenging pile. Not to say that there's not going to be some, some companies that will do just fine, um, but it's hard for me to imagine that they're going to be in any kind of compounder category uh, going forward. I think it, it's kind of interesting to, to talk about retailing in general. And as Sean kind of alluded to, um, what we have seen is there, there's Ferrari and there's Porsche. There's people that buy a vehicle because they want to tell the world something. And then there's the mid-market of retail that has just been obliterated. But then uh, you've got Dollar General, you've got Ross Dress for Less, you've got TJ Maxx down at the bottom end. And if you've never been to a Dollar General, even though The Guardian likes to write nasty articles that they only have horrible food at, at uh, Dollar General, you know, consider that these are first world problems. Um, in our office, we always, you know, if we go down some social cause type argument for or against, we always like to ask, you know, how does this impact the single mom trying to raise three kids? In the case of like Dollar General, I mean, they are packed in neighborhoods. Typically, you'll see almost no cars in the parking lot, and yet the stores are full because they're within walking distance. And they are serving a customer that does not attend lattice work. They're serving a customer that is living day by day. They don't go on to Amazon and say, oh, that would be really nice to have around the house. They're saying, I've got to get food today and I've got money for today and I'm going to walk to Dollar General and go get it. There are a lot more poor people in our country than there are wealthy people. And so just going with the numbers, um, that is going to continue to service our society as a whole. I don't think that's necessarily an evil statement. If you go to Ross, quite honestly, I don't think I've ever paid more than $25 for a tie because most of my ties and most of my shirts come from Ross Dress for Less. I am a cheapskate, I am frugal through and through, and I'm not gonna pay more than 15 bucks for a shirt if I don't have to. If you go there, it is truly an adventure. You never know what you're gonna get. It's always kind of fun when date night's a little slow with the wife. Hey, you wanna stop by Ross and see what they got? There are a lot more people that are going to be shopping at that type of a place than we are all getting custom suits. And so remember that from an investment perspective. You know, you look at the dollar stores, um, Dollar General's one that we have favored over Dollar Tree. 
Uh, you look at Ross Dress for Less. Uh, historically, we had owned uh, TJX for a long, long time. Ross has definitely been one to consider, and there's a lot of opportunity there. So even though the mid-market has probably faced a lot of challenges and probably will continue to, there are other markets that are not going to be nearly as affected by some of the structural changes that are going on in our society. You know, w one thing I would add as far as the brands, and I don't mean to pick on brands because they're going to fall apart, because they're not. These are relatively low volatility businesses, right? You're not going to have massive step downs in, in unit volumes. But tied up with, with consumer staples as a broader category, consumer staples as of like five years ago, I think had the, was the sector with the best performance over the past 40 years, 50 years of all of them. And that ties into a lot of research that came out just a couple of years ago showing that low beta stocks had outperformed, low volatility stocks had outperformed kind of the opposite of what, you know, efficient market hypothesis would, would suggest. But what the research didn't spend a lot of time kind of tearing apart was the fact that we've had a 35-year decline of interest rates, a 35-year decline in, in bond yields, and that these stocks, many of which are kind of like bond proxies, right? So if you have that as a massive tailwind, low volatility stocks should outperform. And we look at our own portfolio, which is much more economically sensitive at the fundamental, the company corporate level, than our average portfolio has been over the last 15 years. We're just, we have a lot more of our investments in, in the tech sector, consumer discretionary, and industrials um, as a kind of weighting relative that where we've been in the past. And that is just a valuation thing from our standpoint. And I know, you know um, Ed just talked about the tech stocks are what's driving the expense, but we look at a lot of the low volatility sectors of the market and say, those are way too expensive, right? If you get a five-year yield on the 10-year, which we think is an entirely reasonable proposition over the next five years, those are going to be painful stocks to own, right? And, um, and so I think that the thing that we find kind of most interesting about that is so many of the great investors over the last 30, 40 years who think like everyone in this room think correctly identified consumer brands, low volatility businesses as great places to invest. And yet, whether those conditions will be the same over the next 20 years is a really important thing, I think, for people to have a view on. And our view is not so much that those are all bad investments, just that it is a far more uncertain future for kind of low volatility stocks and, and things like the consumer staple sector. And Dave, if I heard correctly, you described Starbucks not as a coffee shop, but as a technology platform. Was that basically what you said? Sure. Could you elaborate on that observation and share your thesis, perhaps? Okay. So, I mean, it, I assume everybody has been to a Starbucks, and, you know, if you spend any time with my wife, we are not going anywhere without her going by to get her sweet tea with Five Splenda at Starbucks. It's a very precise process. But as she's going, she's getting little emails from Starbucks. Says, oh, by the way, have you thought about this? We've got a special on this. What they've got is the data that allows them to bring people into their rewards program. Once you start bringing them into the rewards program, they've identified that rewards members will spend two to three times as much as just the average person, the average tightwad like me. So my wife is going by and she wants to go get her sweet tea. 
And then Starbucks is pinging her as she's walking by or walking through the store, or maybe she's nowhere near, but they know what her buying preferences are and they're sending her ads that say, hey, we're having a special on this right now. Not only are we having a special, but if you come by, we'll give you even more rewards points that you can use later on down the road. They're collecting all of that data, number one on buying preferences. They are upselling their customers at every opportunity. What's the favorite gift card to give to everybody? It's a Starbucks gift card. Starbucks has like $1.3 billion in deposits from gift cards. So go back to the SNH blue chip stamps days of Buffett and Munger. I mean, it's pretty much the 21st century version of that. It's here's a whole bunch of float. People are going to use it eventually, but in the meantime, you guys can go do something that's high return on it. And then every time somebody goes and swipes their Starbucks gift card, you're gaining more data. So more and more, it's moving in that direction. It's a way of engaging your customer in a more meaningful, more repetitive manner. It's gathering the data and it's monetizing the data. And how do you value Starbucks if you have all this data which is not showing up in the, in the financials? That's, that's the great thing. I mean, even if, uh, you know, there's a little bit of controversy over what like Lucan is going to do over in China and is that going to slow them down in same store sales. There's, there's always lots of news. So like Ed Wackenheim said earlier, you know, there's like one data point that focuses everybody on the negative. But if you just look at the, the numbers, uh, the expansion into China, expansion into India, there's a lot of good things. And that's before really factoring in how do you value harnessing in this data. And uh, so I don't think Starbucks has to do a whole lot. In our opinion, we kind of value that data at zero. We just look at it for what it is today and every other penny that is generated off of that is gravy. Uh, turning to Felix, I was very impressed by your recent MOI Global Online Conference presentation. Can you share any thoughts on CEOs and owner operators who you really admire? Um. Yeah, so the presentation was on uh, uh, Middleby, so Salem Basul was um, sort of an outsider type of prototype. Um, certainly Thorndike's book has, I think, hugely impacted me and I think almost everybody in this room. Um, so certainly um, one of the sort of predictive attributes that we look for uh, uh, is, is, is sort of founder-run companies. So, you know, we um, uh, very much admire, um, you know, some companies that we don't own, uh, such as you know, um, Facebook um, and um, Google, but the companies that we really like is Salim Basul. So Salim Basul basically has a very uh, unusual um, background. Um, he's actually dyslexic uh, and he has ADHD. Uh, so uh, since he took over, the, the, the stock's been a hundred bagger, but the whole culture has been actually uh, changed um, uh, around his sort of personality type. So for example, they don't have hardly any meetings. He hates meetings. He doesn't do e emails. He doesn't like sitting in the office because he has ADHD. He has to constantly go around and you know, visit customers and go to plants. And so it has a, a very different kind of can-do culture because that's what's driven by his so-called disabilities. So sometimes when you, you know, hear about these quirks and you know, that can be perceived as disabilities, uh, they actually may be the source of competitive advantage because they're doing something totally different from everybody else. So, you know, um, 
you know, a lot of the, the characters out of the, the Outsider book as well. I mean, they're very unusual iconoclet class. So, um, you know, if you see anybody that's from the standard mold, um, you know, uh, you know, they're unlikely to have the courage to, to do the different things that, that require true value creation. So, I mean, I, I'd certainly put him as a, as a recent example of, uh, of this type of CEO that we admire. Shai, you asked a really good question to Dave about kind of how does the Starbucks digital advantage show up in the financials? And I think that's kind of the key link that if you are making a, um, a, a speculative view on how things might be different in the future, it has to tie back to cash flow. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. Right? That was the big mistake of the dot-com era was saying, like, well, it's eyeballs. Well, guess what? That was pretty much right, right? Getting attention, but then monetizing attention ended up being exactly what became one of the most valuable things for companies to learn how to do. But a lot of the early companies doing that got attention but had no strategy to monetize it. And so only looking at the eyeballs wasn't really relevant, right? It, only if you could tie it back to cash flow. And so Starbucks, we, we're new shareholders in Starbucks, and, and we struggle to really look at the data advantage and say, that's going to transform their business. We don't really believe that, but we believe it's going to help them sustain their business at levels above where they are currently operating, which is really only slightly below kind of, kind of longer-term norms. There's a sense that it's like blowing up, and we don't think that's really true at all. Um, and then with something like Netflix, right? So Netflix is, is the, the really easy one to say, this is crazy, it's so expensive, like on every metric, right? And, and it is on every current metric. We don't make bets on massive growth in demand because it's really hard to forecast future demand. But in Netflix's case, I think you can make reasonable forecasts about subscriber growth just based on the weight they're already growing and that they'll kind of have a slowed growth rate over time. But the key metric there is, is what they charge for their product. And pricing power is not constrained by kind of growth saturation in the same way like subscriber counts is, right? The more people you get subscribed, it's harder to add more subscribers. But if you are systematically underpricing your product, there's nothing that says you, you can't raise it, right? If you have the ability to do so. So um, we ask people all the time, like, how much do you pay for your Netflix subscription? And most people don't know. And then if you start asking them, well, how much would they have to raise it to to get you to quit? Um, for a lot of people, it's like $20, right? Some people, it's higher. When you compare to the current price, there's sticker shock and there's anchoring bias, and people are like, oh my gosh, if they made it 15 bucks, 20 bucks, I would quit. That's what everyone says. Initially, every time they raise the price, you get a lot of quits, and then people resubscribe. Because they're like, well, $10, that's outrageous. But then when they miss it for two months, they're like, that's such a bargain, 10 bucks, right? So if you went without Netflix for a year and then someone said, it's 20 bucks, would you resubscribe? A whole lot of people are like, well, of course, it's worth way more than 20 bucks a month to me. At 20 bucks a month at the current subscriber rate, you're talking about stock trading in like the low 20s PE multiple. And that was Bill Nygren's point when he took a position in the stock was he was like, just readjust the price. This is not an expensive stock. Now, Maybe we're all wrong about the price they can charge, but it's not a growth bet, right? It's a bet on a, a pricing strategy. And that's what I mean around the emergence of competitive moats and future moats is it's not about a speculation on future demand, which is a thing that we agree is so hard and too many growth investors focus on, and we, at least we're now good at it. But thinking about how the future might look different because of competitive conditions and business model changes, I think is something that is, should be in the circle of competence of everyone in this room. I think that's like, that's what we all get paid to do. 
And Sean, you made a compelling case for Landstar at Wide Mode Investing Summit as a technology platform rather than a, rather than a trucking business. Typically, these type of platforms trade at premium multiples. Could you talk about what you would say is a fair valuation versus a cheap valuation and just how you think about Landstar's price? Sure. So Landstar has rallied a, a fair bit since I talked about just just recently. And um, you know it's getting closer to what we think fair value is. Um, but one thing I like about Landstar in this context is hearing us all talk, I'm like, oh my gosh, we're like those the, the tech guys who come in at the end and say, look at the future, everything's going to be different. But the vast majority of our portfolio is actually nothing like that. And, and Landstar is like a 30-year-old trucking business, right? And um, the uh, people worry now that they're going to be disrupted by the new tech players, the app-based players or, or autonomous trucking and um, you know that there's going to be the uberization of, of trucking and our view is that like Landstar is the uber of trucking they just started it 30 years ago right and so um, when you look at uh, at the app-based competitors Goldman Sachs this morning I haven't read it because just the cover page but they're talking about kind of app-based competitors to the third-party logistics trucking industry and how the challenge is not an app like Landstar's had an app since like 2011 or something like that um, the reason that Uber and Airbnb became so dominant so quickly was not because they had an app. It's because they both sourced very large new sources of supply. So it wasn't that all the taxi drivers switched over to a new app-based competitor in the taxi market. It's that everyday people who had cars and knew how to drive but were not part of the taxi supply started driving for Uber. Same thing with Airbnb, right? It wasn't that all the hotels said, great, I'll sign up for this app. It's that all these people with rooms in their houses said, oh, we'll just create all this new conditions of supply. So the ability of Airbnb and Uber to bring on all of this new forms of supply, not just duplicating additional supply, but new forms of supply was what made them so successful, not just the app. The app certainly enabled it, but it wasn't the critical thing. And so today you hear, all the time about like the Uber of this, the Uber of that. And the question is, is there a bunch of supply you're gonna bring on? And there is not a bunch of big rigs in people's backyard with people who know how to drive it, they just don't have any loads to carry, right? And so new apps are almost irrelevant in our view to the trucking brokerage business. Um, and so I hesitate to call it like a technology platform. Like yes, they have a load board and yes, truckers go on to this load board and it's online and there's an app and but that's not really what it is. It's that they have a network of truckers and a network of loads, and it's a classic network effect business where there's a lot of loads on that board, and so the truckers go there to find a load to haul, and there's a lot of truckers who haul on that load board, so shippers put their loads there, and an app doesn't create a network overnight. Um, so for me, it's kind of one of the ones I'm, I'm particularly kind of passionate about in a, in a sense because I think there is so much of people who are, are excited about future changes and saying, oh, an app for this is gonna destroy everything. And we think that's, that Uber and Airbnb did something different than launching an app that made them successful. And Dave, you presented C.H. Robinson a while ago. Do you have any thoughts, any reactions, or any, any comments? You know, at the time, uh, that has been, what, five years ago? So five years ago, C.H. Robinson was really kind of at that inflection point to where the growth investors were abandoning the, the theme and value investors were starting to come in. And uh, it was certainly a good time to establish a position and it had done well, but you were definitely seeing the, the headwinds of competition. Their returns have continued to erode. 
And there are a lot of good players in it, as well as whether they're founded or unfounded, concerns about, oh my God, I can just get an app and all of a sudden I'm coordinating buyers and sellers. Um, so C.H. Robinson has definitely felt the pressure, but they're definitely still a very strong player and one you know, in a very fragmented market. I mean, when you look at those guys, you're talking about uh, the largest players have, a, I mean, just single digit uh, market shares. So, and I think as a natural follow-up, last question for you, any thoughts about XPO logistics, considering the fragmentation, considering the economics of the industry, do you have any strong thoughts for or against XPO? Or no thoughts? Not particularly, but I, I think it's, Will Thorndike's presentation was great, and his book, I think, is kind of one of the, the great books on investing um, of the last, you know, last decade or so, because of the the way in which it laid out a framework that incorporated using M&A and using debt in a disciplined, effective way. And, and a fair number of investors kind of look at M&A and debt as just bad things, right? And uh, I think that Outsiders did a fantastic job, um, along with the, the book Cable Cowboy about John Malone was kind of the, the first that I read that really kind of illustrated for me that, you know, debt is not just a bad thing. It's a tool that can be used for good or for ill, and, and it has impacts on your business. Um, and so XPO Logistics is kind of a, a classic kind of M&A-fueled platform compounder sort of business. Um, we've owned Transdime, and I have to thank Will if he's still here, because he gave three paragraphs in the end of the Capital Cities chapter in which he said, basically, you know, if you're looking for a modern doppelganger to Capital Cities, it's Transdime, which I had never heard of before. And we've owned it since 2014 because of his book. So that was, uh, it was a, a nice, paid more than the price of the book, that's for sure. Um, but I don't think that all businesses that, that do that sort of strategy are effective at it. And, and most of them are just in the too hard pile, right? So um, XPO is one that has been successful for the most part. And, and you know, if you look over a longer time period and everything, and, but I, I, I don't know how replicable it continues to be in the future. Not that it's not, I just, I don't know. For us, when dealing with a roll-up, it probably takes us, 10 years plus or minus to figure out whether or not the quality of those acquisitions have been productive or whether or not they would have been better just lighting money on fire. And when I find a situation like that, uh, if I can't figure out whether or not they're good capital allocators in a shorter amount of time, I'm probably going to give them a shorter leash or I tend to find easier decisions to make. And I think in terms of discipline, the easier decisions to make is generally the, the better decision for our firm. One, uh, one of the um, uh, great books on uh, roll-ups uh, as one chapter is Billion Dollar Lessons, so I'd encourage you guys to read it if you haven't, but it just talks about what a high percentage of rollouts don't work. So it tends to be the exception rather than the rule. Um, so, you know, Will Thorndike also talked about, you know, the best predictor of capital allocation ability is previous or historical capital allocability. So, in the case of XBO, uh, Bradley Jacobs, I mean, this is, I believe, his fifth, fifth. Uh, he's a serial entrepreneur. So this is the fifth time you could go and study what he's done in the past. Uh, that gives you some comfort <clears throat> on what might happen in the future. On the other hand, he's probably close to the end of the journey. I mean, he is, again, a serial entrepreneur. So uh, I'm not sure if he's going to be with XPO in two or three years. Certainly when he first started that, uh, that whole uh, project, he basically inferred that right around now he'd probably be selling or getting out of it. So I know that he's looking for some more acquisitions. Uh, but again, it's starting to be a pretty big number. 
uh, a lot of the compounding might be behind us. So just our view. And the, any audience questions, please? So Starbucks has come up a few times. What do you think could go wrong for them as you know, a compounding company? Earlier, we were discussing the, the problem that Howard Schultz has now stepped aside. This is now the second time he's stepped aside. Previous time, they brought in somebody from, I think it was Pillsbury or one of the big package companies who just went on a huge expansion rampage. Kevin Johnson has been with the company nine or 10 years. He came out of the tech industry. He understands tech at a much different level. Um, so I, I think that that's probably a little bit different, but you've still got that dynamic of Schultz stepping back. And a lot of this is predicated on being able to successfully expand into China and, and ultimately India. So there's probably some execution risk. Um, 21 years ago, Starbucks went into China and basically said, you guys don't know what coffee is, but you're gonna love it. And they basically created the brand from day one and they've done very well. They only have 150 stores in India, but they are basically starting at ground zero in India. So we think of India as potentially the next 20 years, but a lot of things can happen on the way to uh, expanding in an emerging market. Yeah, for us, one of the risks that we're comfortable with but aware of is kind of the expansion of the ultra premium coffee market, you know, businesses like Blue Bottle. And the way we got comfort with that is thinking about um, if you look at the beer industry, you had kind of Budweiser and Core, and then you had the move towards craft brewing. Um, today, I believe it's about 75% of the beer market is non-craft, it's about 25% craft. Um, we think that Starbucks basically already did that journey. They were the ones that premiumized the, the coffee industry, but they flipped the whole industry, right? So like everything's premium coffee now. And so imagine if we lived in a beer market in which Sierra Nevada and Sam Adams had the 75% plus market share, and then it was only the ultra premium kind of craft that was fighting over that. And so we believe that Starbucks has kind of already completed that journey along with Pete's and other players that are in the kind of the premium set, and that the, the amount of um, market share that the ultra premium can take is more compressed because it's only the ultra premium, right? The whole market's already premiumized. Um, but maybe we're wrong about that. You know, maybe there is a lot further to go on premiumization and ultra premiumization. And, and um, certainly in the Bay Area where I live, like there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm going to Starbucks, like that's just bad coffee, right? And um, we don't think that's the case on a global basis and this is global business, but that would be a risk for sure. Yeah, uh, last time the Starbucks hit stubbed their toe. It wasn't just because they overexpanded. When Howard Schultz left the building, they, they kind of lost their soul. So the, the focus became on same store sales. Uh, and they started selling everything but coffee, like all kinds of Starbucks dolls. And you started getting this cluttered kind of inauthentic experience. And so people at the store level decided that this actually isn't what I wanted as well. So whenever you have a missionary founder like Howard Schultz leave the door, uh, again, over time, it doesn't happen immediately. And it didn't happen immediately when you left the first time either. Uh, but you could have this kind of loss of mission over time. So they've, hit, they, they've done that once before. Hopefully, they've learned and uh, are hyper aware of it. So It's unique, though. Most companies don't lose a founder twice, right? <laughs> um, and so we would hope that um, having gone through that experience once, that Starbucks without Harold Schultz will have seen a preview of what could go wrong and will behave differently than, than they did the last time around. We have time for one more question. Anybody else? 
So you had mentioned uh, MasterCard earlier, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, um, you know, the whether their moat is increasing or decreasing in the sense that uh, with Alipay, WeChat Pay, Paytm in India, um, Square Cash, lots of different ways. I, I realize some of them use their rails, but from a long-term perspective, if I'm, I've held it for say like three years or so. Now I'm thinking, what about the next five years? So how do you know? It's time to go. Three to five years is a pretty short time period, but given the system that they have put in place, Shay. Thank you. Given the system that they've put in place, uh, it does seem that they're pretty adept at bringing in new competitive threats and actually bringing them, tucking them into their system and saying, let's partner together and bring you in. Um, you know, China's a whole different market and China does what China does. It would be nice if MasterCard would have the embrace of the government and other uh, gatekeepers in that market, but MasterCard, Visa, and PayPal don't have to be in China to be successful, and I would say if your time frame's three to five years, I don't see that market being disrupted in that short of a time. We've owned MasterCard since 2010, and a lot of times the most winning investments seem inevitable in retrospect. But when we bought the stock and for the first couple of years, we in the market had really serious concerns about the technology shifts around smartphone adoption and digital wallet and how that would really hurt MasterCard. Um, the telecoms all got together and said, well, we're billers, like we can run transactions through cell phone billing statements. And I love that they called their product ISIS, which um, they're not being a very good name. Um, and, uh, and then they kind of gave up, right? And, and, um, and then there was the worry like, well, Apple, gosh, they've got all these iTunes accounts directly connected to people's bank accounts for bank transfers and Apple Pay is just gonna kill MasterCard. But what's Apple Pay today? It's nothing more than a way to accelerate the number of MasterCard and Visa transactions you do, right? Um, most of the innovation has been around kind of the consumer interface and making it easier and easier to run transactions over Visa and MasterCard's rails. China is the really big exception, and the big question is, will those businesses be able to move out of the Chinese market? And they certainly are trying. If you go to Google News and, and look for terms like Alipay and MasterCard, you will see articles published for the last five years in a row having some version of now cabs in Vegas, except Alipay. It's all over for MasterCard, and that was five years ago, right? And um, So we come from the perception that we want businesses that are gonna sustain their moats and that are gonna improve their moats, but every moat is under competitive, competitive assault every day. So I would not at all say like, oh, it's just getting stronger and stronger. Like there are more attacks. This is a super good business, right? And so everybody wants to get into it. Um, but we do continue to believe that it is resilient over the very long term. Yeah, uh, we don't own MasterCard, but I think it's a, I think it's a very good question. Um, maybe it kind of pertains to that quote I mentioned earlier, is that the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. So uh, in many respects in China, they're, they're, they're ahead of us in many aspects, and uh, uh, stay tuned, I suppose. But we're, we're not exposed, but it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. It's great to have you.